welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. As I mentioned earlier, this uh, podcast has been published in a bit of a sporadic nature. I still need to work through the schedule and book people in back to back, but I will continue to pop in interesting topics from time to time. So please stay subscribed. So today's topic is one I've been trying to get done for a while and finding the right person to prove to be a challenge. But I think I've done that. And today we're going to deal with the topic of Islamic finance and the challenges that it brings to people who follow that faith, but in particularly business owners and how those restrictions around Islamic finance can be basically adapted to just that a lot of our current financial structures are not supportive of it, uh, but there are options. So in order to do that, I brought in the co-founder of a company called Manzil, Mohammed Sawah, to basically discuss the issue with me. With that, here's my interview with Mohammed. So Mohammed, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks very much, Jason. Uh, really glad to be here. So Mohammed, thanks for taking the time because I've been interested in basically improving education around this topic because there's a lot of just lack of understanding of the challenges uh, pertaining to anyone who's a, fa- a follower of the Islamic faith and the issue of finance. Let's just start off by kind of level setting. Talk to me about Islamic finance and what is what makes it different than basically Western modern finance? Absolutely. So Islamic finance has been around for, for quite some time. In fact, it's it's over 1400 years old from the days of the prophet uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him. And I always like to say that Islamic finance is finance before interest. And that's really the difference uh, in terms of what we see today. Islamic finance main principles is that money has no value. And so when you take this concept that money has no value, well, I can't expect to earn money on top of money. And so I need to be in a financial relationship that is more participatory, more shared risk in and of itself or in its environment asset-backed and asset-based transactions. And so when you start to go along those lines, you start to say, well, you know, this sounds, this already sounds a lot safer and more stable, right? Because there's real value behind these transactions. And that's really the difference today. Uh, You know, it's got to be more participatory. The days of loan sharking or, you know, this whole verbiage of like, you know, we we loan to own, right? Like we don't really care about, you know, those those payments coming back to us. We just want to be able to to own that asset at at the end of the day, because we came in and, and gave them such a, such a ridiculous contract. That's not what Islamic finance is all about. It's, it's all about being fair and equitable. Well, in fairness, too, I mean, every Judeo-Christian Muslim religion, you know, we all have common foundings in that regard, all struggled with various doctrines around usury or lending in general that basically prohibited it. And a bit of a history lesson, unless I'm mistaken, I think the loophole for, for the Jewish community was that you could loan to a Gentile. And therefore, that became kind of the thin edge of the wedge that eventually led to everything becoming normalized. And in the Christian community, going back to, I believe it was the Medici's who, who innovated on this front, it was the concept of discount bonds or discount lending. So I'm going to let you need to borrow a thousand. That's fine. Well, technically the loans for 1100, right? So you're going to pay me back an increase on this. And that's largely how they got around that until of course, over time, it just became accepted. Okay. We can, we can have lending and separation of church and state from that regard. And not only can we have lending, but you know, we're also going to come up with laws that hopefully prevent the usury issues we were looking for, which looking to prevent, which was loan sharking and really things that were very negative. Now, 
Not to say loan sharking doesn't still exist to some degree. A lot to say that payday loans aren't some form of that to some degree, as I bite my tongue. But the Islamic faith has followed kind of a different pursuit and found different solutions. So basically, I can't borrow, right? I mean, as a, if you're a Muslim, if I'm a Muslim, I can't borrow. That's what it comes down to, right? And I can't lend, right? Which when we think about it from a standpoint of anyone, let alone a business owner, that's incredibly restrictive. What are other means for accessing capital in order to do things like buy homes or or to basically even start your own business? No, absolutely. And um, the only way that I tell people that you can borrow money in Islam, if it's one for one, right? So you give me $1,000, I give it back to you. There's something uh, called part of the Hassan, meaning just basically a loan out of the goodness of your heart, right? So you're going to reap the rewards and blessings through the virtue of this, let's call it a transaction, but not really monetarily, right? And then of course, you know, people say, well, you can't even keep up with inflation, you're going to lose and all that stuff. Well, yeah, in the fiat world, especially when you add the lens of Islamic finance, you can't really do that. So when we think about, well, how do actual transactions happen under the pretense of Islamic finance, especially if you are entering into larger type transactions, like maybe you want to buy a car, or maybe you want to buy a home, or maybe you want to finance receivables in your business, there's multiple mechanisms that allow you to do that. And, and one of the main mechanisms or the majority of transactions that are done under this mechanism is called a murabaha. So basically it's a cost plus financing mechanism. Um, and it has to involve an asset. Okay. So if you were in the market for a home today, Jason, and you said, I like this home, I put an offer for $500,000. You would then come to me as an Islamic financier or Islamic financial institution and say, I have this purchase and sale agreement in place. And then we as the bank would say, OK, you know what, we're going to underwrite you. We're going to qualify you and we're going to say to you that, you know what, if we were to purchase this asset on your behalf and resell it back to you, we would resell it back to you, for example, let's say $750,000 and your payments are going to be fixed over the next 25 years or 300 months at $2,500 a month. 2,500 times 300 is 7,500. So it, think of it as like a long-term, non-renewable fixed rate contract, okay? But the essence here, in order for this to be halal, or as I like to say, halalified, is I have to take ownership of that asset and then resell it back to you in a moment of time, in an instant of time, as long as there's that transfer of ownership on both sides of, of, of the deal. And so this is done for cars, done for homes, this is done for even equipment leasing or equipment in general. You can do inventory financing this way, right? Um, as long as there's that element of, of shared risk in a moment of time, as well as the asset-backed or asset-based transaction principle is fulfilled, then we're, we're good to go. And when it comes to the actual rates, it's really based on maybe this is my, my, my term sheet of rates or we negotiate what that rate is. You could come back to me and say, hey, Mohammed, can we do it for this or can we do it for that? And as long as we come to that agreement together, it's completely uh, halal. So bottom line is it's, it's, not, it's not overly different from traditional procedures, except for that risk sharing component, right? That's the big difference. Now, that is not something that's small to, to, to worry about, right? As a financial institution, right? You're, you want, banks traditionally want to lend money 
at a, you know, with no risk. So what are the mitigating factors? Like as a lender, is there a way to mitigate your risk or as the, not lender, but as the risk sharer of this, is there a way to mitigate your risk in this entire scenario? Yeah, absolutely. So under this same transaction model, Murabaha, there's so many risk mitigating factors in favor of, let's call it the financier. One, when you do these transactions, this buy and sell happens actually instantaneously. So it's literally within seconds or moments of seconds. So unless you as the financier really think that that's in and of itself too much of a risk for you to actually own this asset for a, a second or a couple minutes, then okay, that's that's a different story, right? But as long as there is a paper trail that basically shows that you've owned this asset and you've now sold it, and it doesn't matter how what the difference of time is in between those two transactions are, you fulfilled that mandate, right? And then of course, you know, once that transaction or that let's call that transaction completed and that asset is sold or resold, you have all of the rights and protections or in covenants in place as any financier would, because in Islamic finance, and I think there's a big misconception around this, is that as the financier, you have the right towards repayment, right? And so if a client defaults or doesn't repay, there's so many mechanisms for you to actually have recourse on that asset in and of itself. And so, you know, I always tell people, you know, when you think, when you look at the end result of an Islamic financial transaction, it looks exactly the same as a conventional one. It's just how you got there was completely different, right? It's really all in the process and the documentation. Yeah, it looks very, again, it looks closer to conventional than not. I think, frankly, how long have these concepts of, you know, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Mahabal, is that pretty close? Like, how long has this been a common, commonly used tactic for being halal in terms of borrowing and lending? Yeah, so I, I would say the modern era of Islamic finance uh, started off in the, the late 60s, early 70s. And really in the most Western example of this is, is the UK, right? Like there was, they've started to introduce these types of structures back in the day. It was never mainstream. You obviously had, you know, the Islamic banks in the Middle East and North African countries, but they were just starting to kind of become emerging markets. And so they didn't really have fully fledged developed banking systems. And they they veered into the conventional space before they brought in the Islamic finance space. But yeah, you could trace it back to almost 50 years ago, I would say. And now, you know, when you think about just Islamic finance on a global scale, we're approaching $3 trillion in assets uh, globally. It's at a double digit CAGR. And I'd say 70 to 80% of the transactions within that asset class are done using this cost plus profit model, which, as you had uh, lightly mentioned, is, is, is termed as murabaha. Yeah, I mean, and when you say it's growing at that rate and how big it is, I mean, frankly, I'd have to say this is the tip of the iceberg. Just even my own challenge, like my own travels, I mean, having visited Egypt a couple of times because of a friend from there and, and seeing buildings that were like half done and no scaffolding on them, and I'd be looking at them and saying like, okay, like what happened there? Like, why are there so many half built towers? And they're like, well, they basically build as far as they can get with the financing they have. And then, you know, they stop until they can get more financing. And I'm just like, whew, man, not being able to borrow traditionally has some restrictions, especially, I mean, I think the bigger issue is the infrastructure, like we're talking about right now, just hasn't gained mass adoption around the world the way it needs to in order to kind of supplant the, or replace the needs of this community that traditional banking would otherwise provide if they could do it. So, I mean, I think this is, to talk about a growth area, my goodness. And I think especially in Western societies, as, as more and more Muslims move to Western society, this is a gaping, gaping hole. No, absolutely. And I think there's also just a lack 
of a robust secondary market when it comes to the issuance of these Islamic debt instruments, which are called sukuks, right? Like Islamic bonds. And so mm-hmm. anytime a sukuk is issued, either at the sovereign level or at an institutional level, they're, you know, five to 10 times oversubscribed, right? There's just not enough paper that is being created to meet the supply of capital that people want to basically buy into. And when you think about, you know, there's 1.8 billion Muslims globally, and a lot of them are concentrated in these developing countries and with not robust financial systems in place, there is a huge opportunity to really move this forward into, into the next frontier. And it just takes a few institutions at a global scale to be able to solve for this with, you know, well-capitalized resources to make this happen. Um, we're starting to see, you know, even in the Islamic fintech space, a real growth spurt when it comes to, you know, innovative solutions, especially in, in the digital area that basically allow for these transactions to be much more simplified, accessible, because the Muslim population globally is a young one, right? Uh, very young, very digitally savvy. So there is an education and awareness piece to get them up to speed with the differences between Islamic-based uh, transactions versus the conventional. But once they understand it and once they understand how that th- this can be applied to their religious lifestyle and you can you know, make it accessible in the palm of their hands, there's no shortage of, of what kind of opportunity or potential that could be long-term for them. Agreed. I got to say, it's um, a challenge. So let's talk about the other piece of this, which is the investing side. When someone wants to actually take their money as a Muslim and invest it, they, of course, cannot earn interest, which takes the entire global bond market, the single biggest investing market there is, off the table. So you guys can't use zero coupon bonds. You saw that trick. You don't approve of it. Okay, fair enough. So basically, talk to me about other than equity, how does one invest in the halal method? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about just diversifying your investments uh, as a Muslim investor, especially when it comes to the fixed income market. So Islamic bonds are available. So they're called sukuks. There are a couple of sukuk funds out there. There's one sukuk ETF that's been recently launched, SPSK, that's uh, listed on the uh, US exchanges. I think also AGF or Butel Goodman actually has uh, a sukuk uh, mutual fund that's available as well. Again, these are very, very small funds, maybe reaching $100 million, again, because there's not enough paper. And so there are other ways of investing in income-deriving investment instruments. And one of them can be just in the actual of these transactions, right? So murabaha, musharaka, or ijada, like you could be a retail investor or an institutional investor in Islamic leasing or Islamic cost plus or Islamic partnership transactions whereby these assets in and of themselves are basically creating the revenue stream, right? And that's the biggest piece, right? So if I'm going to go into some sort of fixed income stream transaction, well, where's the revenue being generated from? It can't just be generated off of the money. There's got to be an asset behind it generating that revenue. So if it is a home, then yes, it's it's from the mortgage payments. Uh, if it's from a car, then it's from the financing payments. If it's from equipment, it could be from those leasing payments. So more and more of these funds are now coming out. There's definitely still a dearth of them. 
within the landscape, but we're starting to see that come into the marketplace uh, more often and more available and, and making it more accessible to these Muslim-based uh, retail investors. So basically, we talked about just Muslim finance in general, but let's talk about it as it pertains to business owners in particular. You got to find that this is this is probably a unique challenge. I mean, if you're in a manufacturing business, I think again the entire Mahara uh, like purchase and sale thing that is accessible. How accessible is that? Like, how big a scale can someone get these days? I mean, the, as you said, there's a lack of paper or lack of flow coming through on this sort of stuff. So the question becomes, like, if I'm someone in Canada looking to looking to basically build a manufacturing plant and I want to do things in a halal method, what does that look like? So. You know, that's the thing, Jason, like it's very jurisdiction based. I would say in Canada, it's it probably impossible to find transactions or contracts that would fulfill that mandate unless you went to some sort of private source of capital, could be friends or family or community, and then you structured a contract that would fulfill those principles. But, you know, if you went into the GCC or the Gulf countries or Southeast Asia, like Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia, where there are banks that basically do these types of transactions on scale or on mass, it wouldn't be hard, right, to, to build a manufacturing plant in those jurisdictions. But in North America in particular, I would say it's, it's pretty much close to impossible at, at, at the current time. Well, let me, just, let me just level that up a bit. What about knowledge-based industries, right? You want to scale up a consulting company or something like that. What's the potential there, if any? So again, the potential is huge. The availability is very, very low, right? So I tell people like, if you don't find it in the industries where it's very easy to create these transactions, i.e. manufacturing or equipment, in, like industries that are heavy on equipment, because those assets are real, right? It's very hard to then find it in the knowledge-based industries because they haven't been able to make that shift yet, right? Like the, the equipment leasing or financing is, is a low risk, so to speak, type of financing transaction because there's hard assets or real assets that you can see, feel, and, and that you can secure. Then to transfer that over into a knowledge-based industry, well, now you're moving up chain. It's a little bit higher risk. What are you securing against that contract? So we really need to start with the hard assets first before we can get there. And again, you'd find that more prevalent in the Middle East, North African region, Southeast Asian regions versus in Europe or North America at the current time. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Now, I, I look at all this and say, talk about an opportunity. That's the argument Clayton Christensen made in one of his last books, which was non-consumption is a sign of desire for consumption because it's, sometimes it's just, you know, sometimes the non-consumption is, hey, there's no market for this here. Other times it's, hey, there's a market for here this year and no one's managed to tackle it yet. So um, I look at this and say to myself, like there is a Islamic finance powerhouse willing to be built in the in Western society in most Western countries, because frankly, this is ever expanding population. Like how many was a billion Muslims worldwide and more of them migrating to Western societies. So it's 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 huge. So before we go any further, let's, let's actually talk about what it is you've done to help fill this gap thus far. So Menzo really came out, let's call it from personal experience or personal concerns that I faced. Like I, I was born and raised here in Toronto and really enveloped myself within the Muslim communities here. And ever since I graduated in 2007 and got into the financial services field in, at the advisory level and at the retail banking level, there was just this constant, this constant banter of, well, there's nothing there for us from the community. Like they're saying, there's no products. I don't know why you're trying to sell me this stuff. 
It's against my religion. In fact, you shouldn't even be selling it, right? Because it's against your religion to even be earning an income from selling these products. And you go against that constant barrier and you then take this feedback and you're like, okay, well, there seems to be a real need here. And I take this you know, up the levels of the, of the executives at the banks and they all come down and say, we know there's an opportunity, but we just don't think it's big enough. Or, you know, we don't have the resources financially, non-financially to be able to, to put something together. And it's, I tell them, I say, you don't need to build a bank to support these initiatives. Like you can literally take a product that's off the shelf, halalify it, and then rinse and repeat, right? And, you know, there's so many examples of Islamic windows, right? You know, which are basically Chinese walled departments of a main institution or a main bank, like HSBC has HSBC Amana, which is an Islamic window of HSBC. BNP Paribas, same thing. Standard Charter, Barclays, right? Some of them uh, focus on commercial transactions. Some of them focus on institutional transactions. Even like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan in the States have done Sukuk issuances on behalf of some of these large uh, corporations. And so, you know, there is enough resources out there to be able to learn how to do these things. I think it was just a lack of will to be able to do so. And so fast forward to, I would say 2014, where I started to embark on my MBA. And that's where I hooked up with a professor of finance and economics out of uh, Rotman, who was teaching the only Islamic finance course. And when I expressed my interest to him, he says, yeah, absolutely. Why don't you become my TA and let's go teach this class. And so that's really where I understood the foundations of Islamic finance. But more importantly, how do you actually uh, localize these transactions? Because when you're coming from a country that has no tax, right? Like you come, you come from UAE or, or Saudi and wow. any type of transaction, there's no applicable tax, right? It's very easy to be like, yeah, let's do a back-to-back sale transaction. Or you know what? We're going to share in this contract on a profit and loss basis, and there's still no implication of tax on capital gains or, or the such, right? And so the localization of these products becomes very, very key. And so in 2017 is really where I like to say rubber hit the road and kind of that R&D mode kicked in. And I came to tackle the most, I would say the hardest or most complex problem, which is the piece of home ownership, right? When you think about Canadian Muslims today, we're 1.8 million strong, growing to 3 million over the next 10 years. And we have a $20 billion annual spending power. But then you look at Census Canada and you see that we have the lowest participation rates of home ownership and capital markets. And I tell people it's not because of our balance sheet. It's because of a lack of product. Right. The whole situation where the banks were like, yeah, we're going to listen to you. And they started to maybe redesign their marketing strategy to appeal to certain languages, certain cultures. They'll put people of the same community within these local branches. But me as a Muslim, I will walk into a branch and say, okay, it's great that you speak my language. It's great that there's somebody that, you know, I can connect with on a, on a common ground piece, but do you actually have a Sharia compliant product? And the answer is no. And then I walk out, right? Yeah, like you exactly. still can't serve my purpose. So I said to myself, I said, I have to create retail products that not only can fulfill this mandate of financing, but also can fulfill this mandate of investing. There's so much capital sitting on the side. Like we constantly hear this, especially from the time of of 08, the crash, like how much money has been sitting in cash. I can tell you that there is a multiple of that, especially amongst the Muslim community. Like I get calls on a daily basis on my platform saying, hey, I have 500,000, 600,000 sitting in cash. I can give you a 50 to 60% deposit to purchase a house. Can you just finance 
the remainder, right? Like 30, 40, 50%. There's people today are renting, avoiding home ownership because they want to be, you know, they want to go to sleep at night peacefully, knowing that their affairs are in order, uh, financial affairs are in order from an Islamic perspective. People go out and buy cars in cash because they don't want to enter into any sort of financing agreement. People have bare credit scores because they don't want to have debt contracts right, that they want to enter into in order to increase their credit score. So they'll do the minimum. They'll secure a phone line just so they can basically get that rental agreement in place. They'll secure a prepaid credit card that potentially will build their credit, right, over time so that they can secure a phone line or a rental agreement. Like, they'll just do the bare minimum. And so when you think about the lost opportunity from a GDP perspective, the lost opportunity from a knowledge-based perspective within this community of, you know, which is now almost 5% of Canada growing to 10% to Canada over the next 10 years, it's massive. It's completely untapped. It's blue ocean. Yeah. It's and growing. I mean, yeah, it's. it's and who are the immigrants that are coming in? They tend to be from countries that you're, that are more pronounced uh, to be Muslim. Absolutely. The majority of them, right? And and we have Trudeau announcing that he's increasing immigration to 400,000 a year over the next four years to 1.6 million. I would suspect the majority of those are coming from these countries. And and they're coming in with skills. They're coming in with dollars, real dollars. But And they don't know where to deploy them. Or they're being forced to deploy them into assets that are interest-bearing. And you know what they do? Even if they do collect that interest, they give it away to charity. They have to cure to get rid of it. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, I can't even... I mean talking about a lack of financial inclusion it's it's nuts but yeah the uh i gotta tell you the, it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit tongue twisting because it's just like you look at a market that's like you said five percent canadian population growing bring, we're bringing in the most educated ones in most cases right and it's like we're and then we're basically saying okay now you either have to do something that's against your religion or you have to basically try to go out there and make it with two with both hands tied behind your back just doesn't make sense yeah. And, and when you think about even just, you know, we can get into the topic of, of just real estate market in Canada, you know. Oh, <laughs> well, think you about, know. oh, my God, the, the lack of, of wealth that is, you know, you look at the increase and I can go talk about the bubble and, and the, the, yeah. the problems with all this. But an entire an entire cohort has been left out by nature of their religion, unfortunately, and our inability to service them. Yeah, I was born here. Right. So I'm I'm 36 years of age. And I remember my parents in the early 80s, late 80s, they were going to the one butcher shop that was providing halal meat. Yeah. But fast forward to today, the halal meat industry, if you didn't know this, Jason, is a two billion dollar industry in Canada fully regulated right by the FDA of Canada and halal meat in general is just mainstream it's available you probably oh. eat it you don't even know right oh i know it's it, this is this is always <laughs> the default right like at the end of the day if it's always easier to you know if you're going to meet the needs of 100% of the population but 5% cares that it's halal or kosher or whatever it is it's just easier to buy the price is the same. It's just easier to make everything that, right? Absolutely. So I fully expect the default to be, and I mean, my understanding of the difference between halal and, and kosher, forgive me if I'm wrong here, is just it's a different prayer said over the animal before the slaughter, right? It's exactly the same, except yeah. for the prayers. And in fact, as Muslims, we're allowed to eat kosher meat. There you go. So it's right? just, you know, it's just easier if you're a business to, to not bother playing this game. Let's just, you know, let's, you know, I'm not going to- you know, that, that's in fact what they did in New Zealand and Australia. So like, like federally- all yeah. meat out of New Zealand and Australia is halal. Why? Because they export more than they consume. And where are they exporting to? Neighboring countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore that require. So they said, well, why do we have two systems in place? By default, right? Let's just make everything halal and it's, everybody can consume it. No problem. Totally. Well, I mean, why, why bother? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why and, bother and so, you? Yeah. And so my point was, is if we had Islamic finance 40 years ago and it was able to grow to a scale where the halal meat industry is today, imagine the wealth that could have been created from this community. Imagine the, the charitable uh, giving that is because in Islam too, like we're required to donate two and a half percent of our wealth on an annual basis. Like it's an almsgiving. It's, yeah. it's like it's mandated, yeah, it's right? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you have to give away two and a half percent of your wealth to local charities, communities that are serving, you know, the needs. Imagine where society could be today if that was available, if that was there. Yeah, it's the short-sightedness. I mean, we talk about the lack of finance. And, and here's the thing, and I, I, I can't harp on this enough. One of the big varying factors when you look at economic development of any nation versus another, or any population versus another, is, is access to financial services. This is why concepts like open banking, democratization of financial services are incredibly important. Because if not, like I said, you're basically holding back a population that could otherwise be doing wonderful things, creating job opportunities, giving to charities, you name it. And we just have not done that. I mean, it's, and I, I think it's getting a little bit long in the tooth to be arguing it's in its infancy. It's something that maybe, in a, I'll pick on Canada here as I always do. If we had a more competitive financial landscape with less than five, with more than five institutions running everything, maybe yeah. one of them would make it a priority because they saw the opportunity to capture 5% of the market. But when you're fat and lazy and you don't have to do anything other than keep competition out, what's the point? No, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I tell people, you brought up a good point. It, it's, it's, you can have an industry of Islamic finance that's running parallel to conventional finance. But mm-hmm. what are you creating? And we had to do this ourselves, Jason. Like in 2017, when I was seeking law firms and audit firms and advisory firms to create this product, I actually had to educate them first, create the awareness. Yep. And then, so so I was creating industry, a sub-industry out of that industry, right? Like, so there are law firms now in Canada that have subspecialties in Islamic finance. There are audit firms. There are, you know, advisory and consulting firms, right? And so you can create a new industry. Like, and the bad thing about Canada is, is what is 66% of our GDP is what finance and resources and finance no, hates resources. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're a bunch of resource companies and a bunch of banks and a bunch of other stuff around the periphery. And then, you know, of course, Shopify. And when you're trying to diversify an economy, if you want to stick with those main industries, then create subspecialties out of them, right? Like diversify those, those main industries so that you, you can imagine the FDI that could come from this, right? Like there's so much money in the GCC, like I go to the, I go to the Gulf twice a year. Canada is just an unknown market to them. They like, yeah, we understand the U S you know, we our our dollars are pegged. There's no Forex yeah. risk there. We can put our money there, but Canada is just completely unknown. Like they, there's no transactions. There's no comparables for them to look at. They don't even bother. But imagine if you opened your doors and said, yes, we're happy to do uh, these transactions on it. The, the amount of money you could get for infrastructure, the amount of money you could get for just like there's actually money already in Alberta from Mubadala, which is the sovereign wealth arm of Abu Dhabi. Dubai Ports is managing our Vancouver ports right now. So hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars have been poured in to very specific sectors, petrochemicals, uh, ports, but we could be attracting a lot more, especially when it comes to banking and finance. But again, you know, this oligopolistic approach within banking, within telecom, within airlines, we're shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to this stuff. (laughs) Nothing irritates me more. 
Completely agreed. And I think we'll take it, we'll wrap up here uh, after we beat up on Canada yet again uh, when it comes to our, our lack in competition. But overall, I mean, here's the reality of it. If you're an Islamic investor, business owner, person in this country, you have a challenge and those challenges are greater. And I, I you know, knowing the situation, I've always been a little bit more <laughs> sympathetic, if not impressed by those who managed to make it work because, you know, doing so with 100% equity financing because you have no other option is very, very constrictive. I know myself in my own business, I couldn't be where I would was without debt financing. So without having kosher alternatives, pardon me, in this case, halal alternatives, whatever I use kosher as a term for clean all the time, halal alternatives, we really are asking these people to go out and fight a battle with, two, with both arms tied behind their backs. And I thank you for helping create this nascent industry in Canada and hopefully hope to see it expand. No, thank you very much, uh, Jason. And, uh, you know, if, if I could leave with any final thoughts, I tell people all the time, these structures, these transactions can be created. There's nothing stopping us from creating them except for the capital that is required behind it, right? To basically bring it out into the open. There's no shortage of demand. So you don't really have to worry about that, right? Like you have one side of the puzzle already solved. You just need to find the capital and the structures can be created in in fact, there's multiple examples in Western countries in common law. Like you don't really need to go that far to be like, well, are there really risks associated with creating these types of structures or products? There, there isn't really at the end of the day. They're, they're out there. You just have to go beyond the borders. Yeah, I find more often than not people like, oh, but it's an unknown. It's like, well, have you really researched it? You know, more often than not, <laughs> people people who are risk averse to shut something down with words like security or unknown or all this other stuff. Well, study the, the problem, understand the problem, and then you'll see it's a lot more secure than you think yeah. it is. Anyway, thank you for your time and thank you for taking the time to explain this to everybody. And I greatly appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you, Jason, for having me. So that was my interview with Mohamed Swa of Manzil. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever's at your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.